come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But his righteousness she shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of all the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion fatten calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall be the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now we will light the Bethlehem candle. morning. My name is Michael. Thank you, Tagawa family, for lighting the candle. Would you pray with me before we get started? Father, we're thankful. Thankful for your prophetic word this morning and Holy Spirit, I ask that you would stand within me, that you would speak through me, and that you would help me to communicate clearly your word. Father, we ask that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we may behold wonderful things from your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I thought we'd begin our time by um, giving you a little Christmas quiz. And so I'm going to have Diane put up some slides here. I want you to guess to see if you can recognize some of these famous Christmas trees. And if you can, go ahead and shout them out. Oh, no. New York, right? Rockefeller Center. That's probably the most famous Christmas tree. How about the next one? No, Marshall Fields. <laughs> You're not from Chicago. I am. Charlie Brown's Christmas tree, right? 
And how about this last one? Last photo is a picture of the prophet Isaiah's Christmas tree. Just a stump with a root growing out of it. And it may be the least attractive and unfamiliar of all the trees, but it's actually the truest representation of Christmas because this shoot from the stump of Jesse is a picture of our promised Messiah. I'm going to ask for forgiveness for giving you this Ancestry.com drive-by, but what you need to know for purposes of our text this morning is that the lineage of this Messiah goes all the way back to Jacob's son, Judah. Now, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two, and Israel was in the north and Judah was in the south. The tribe of Judah becomes the chief tribe of Israel, and out of this tribe, Judah has a great-great-great-great-grandson named David. And it's through the line of King David that Isaiah says, we can expect the Messiah to come. In the first several chapters of Isaiah, there's a strong theme of judgment on Judah, because as Mike showed us last week, the people were progressively walking down this path of injustice and idolatry. But then interspersed among these warnings are also words of hope. So as we come to chapter 11 this morning, there's a sense of great hope and good news as Isaiah prophesies that a king is coming, a king like no other. But we need to understand the backstory of one of King David's relatives to appreciate why chapter 11 is such good news. So here's the context. If we go back all the way to 2 Samuel 7, God makes a promise to David, and he says that after he's long gone, he'll make sure that one of David's descendants will rule upon an eternal throne. The problem is that by the time David's line of descendants reaches a king named Ahaz, it appears, at least by human eyes, that what God has promised to David can't or won't happen. Why? It's because Ahaz was a wicked, idolatrous king. His practice of pagan worship was so wicked, he even sacrificed his own children to pagan idols. And he leads the nation of Judah away from Yahweh, the one true God. But his idolatry is just one of many problems that he brought on himself. Along with the surrounding nations, he's worried about having to contend with the nation of Assyria. And Assyria was the King Kong of conquering nations. It was just a matter of time before they were going to come after you. But he also has concerns about the king of Assyria and Damascus in the north. Those two kings were conspiring to remove Ahaz from his throne so they could replace him with a king of their own. But after a failed attempt by these two kings to overthrow him, Ahaz goes into panic mode and he tries to save himself. And so Isaiah tells us in chapter 7 that the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And that's a great picture of people who are terrified. But God comforts and assures Ahaz and he tells him, don't fear those little stubs of firewood. And he refers to Syria and Damascus. Don't fear them, but trust in the Lord, because he is the sovereign God who will protect you and save you. 
Now, God understands how weak and fearful we can be. So he tells Ahaz, ask me for a sign, any sign, and I'll give it to you. And God does this so that Ahaz will put his trust in God alone to save him. But here's how Ahaz responds. He says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And where have we heard that before? Now that sounds pretty godly, right? But remember that to Ahaz, Yahweh is just one God among the smorgasbord of gods that he worships. So he stiff arms God and he refuses his help in order to pursue his own plan. Instead of turning to the Savior he needs, he tries to save himself by aligning himself with the biggest bully in the neighborhood, Assyria. And what does this tell us? It tells us that he fears men way more than he fears God. Now, Assyria is more wicked than Judah. And God will judge them for their arrogance and rebellion. But because Ahaz rejects God and he turns to Assyria as his savior, his self-salvation project backfires. In his sovereignty, God uses Assyria not to save Judah, but to judge and to punish Judah along with the surrounding nations. So when it's all said and done, that mighty tree that used to represent David's kingdom has been cut down, and all that's left is a tree stump. But I want us to see that God's judgment and anger are unlike our judgment and anger. Our anger is retaliatory, and it's vindictive. God's anger is holy, it's righteous, and redemptive. He says in chapter 10 that he has cut down the nations, including Judah, so that at the end of the judgment, there will remain a remnant of Israel who will no longer rely on the Assyrians who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Now contrast that whole context against this amazing prophetic word of Isaiah 11. In spite of the fact that Ahaz is wicked and rejects God, in spite of the fact that Judah became a nation of idolaters, in spite of the fact that Ahaz bows to a different savior, Isaiah says a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. Spoiler alert, his name is Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Jesus Christ is the shoot from the stump of Jesse who has come to rule and reign in perfect righteousness and perfect peace. Okay, so what does the story of Ahaz and Judah have to do with you and me? Well, very simply, their story is our story too. See, all of us have looked for hope in someone or something else outside of God. All of us have trusted in saviors of our own making while ignoring the help of the only true savior who can rescue us. We've allowed the fear of man to take root in our hearts more than we've cultivated a fear of the Lord. And this is what God calls sin, and that makes us an enemy of God. And we may think that our spiritual activity is what makes us right with God, but God doesn't just look at the externals. He looks all the way down to the motivations of our hearts because that reveals who we really are. 
So the bad news is that you and I stand just as condemned, just as guilty as Ahaz and Judah do before this holy God. We all deserve to be cut down and wiped out for our arrogance and rebellion against God. But that's why this shoot from the stump of Jesse is such good news. Because we need someone from outside of us to rescue us from ourselves and from the wrath of God. The problem is that we think we can fix ourselves, that we can rescue ourselves, or that we don't need anyone's help. Because after all, we are Americans. (laughs) The story is told of a giant ship whose engine had failed and left the crew stranded in the middle of the ocean. Now, many of the crew made valiant attempts at trying to repair the engine on their own, but they failed miserably and frustrated. And at the end of their rope, they notified the ship's owner and admitted that they needed outside help. Now, to their surprise, a rowboat soon came and out jumped a little old man with a small tool bag. And by his outward appearance, the crew began to doubt whether or not he was capable of fixing their broken engine. But he assured them he had a 100% performance record for fixing these engines because he was the builder of these ships. So they all watched with anticipation as the man analyzed this problem. And after looking things over, the man reached into his bag, he pulled out a small hammer, and he put his ear to the engine, and he gently tapped the side of the engine. As soon as he did that, the engine starts up immediately and the crew was able to get back to their home. Two weeks later, the captain receives a bill from the man and simply said, amount due, $100,000. Now, the captain was angry and he was confused, so he demanded an itemized bill for these enormous charges. So he received another bill. But this one had two lines on the invoice. The first line said, tapping with the hammer, $2. The second line said, knowing where to tap, (laughs) $99,998. You see, whether or not you or I want to admit it, we need someone from outside of us who knows where to tap on the engine of our hearts, how to resurrect us how to give us life. And the only one able to rescue us is Jesus Christ. We need Jesus as our king. And here's why. When we choose to be king of our lives, we make terrible choices. How many of us can testify when we anoint ourselves as king that we go into panic mode like Ahaz does? Because deep down, we know that we can't really bear the crushing weight of this life. See, you and I aren't qualified to be king. So we need a real king. We need a perfect king. Now notice how Isaiah describes our Messiah. First, he's a king that comes in humility. He comes as an obscure root growing from the stump of Jesse, not David, Jesse. Now, Jesse is David's biological father, but he's not royalty like David. Jesse is only a peasant, and yet Isaiah says our Savior will come from the stump of Jesse. 
This is because the line of David's kingdom had become so weak, so disconnected from God, that it looked nothing like it once had when David was king. But even though tree stumps appear to be dead when the tree is cut down, there's always something going on at the root level. It's just not obvious to us. Now, who would expect an eternal king to be born through the humble means that Jesus was in a manger in an insignificant town of Nazareth? But God often does things in a way that makes it undeniable that this could have only be done by, and accomplished by God and not by the efforts of any man. A second. He's a king who comes fearing the Lord in the Spirit's power. Isaiah says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now in the Old Testament, the anointing of a king with oil was symbolic of the Holy Spirit's power being on that king so that he could rule the people with righteousness and wisdom and power. But Jesus isn't only anointed with the Spirit's power, but he was conceived, Luke 1 tells us, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So every part of Jesus' life and ministry was so saturated with the Holy Spirit that every thought, every motivation, every word, every deed was pleasing to the Lord. The perfect obedience of Jesus to God the Father is good news to you and me. Because it's his obedience, his obedience, not ours, that saves us from the wrath of God. But how can someone else's actions and someone else's obedience to God save us? You ask great questions. The Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans 5 this biblical concept of federal headship. That is that the gospel is based on the principle of representation. Now we all understand how this works when we elect someone for federal office of the United States. That person acts on behalf of a group of people in such a way that the actions of the one apply to the entire group they represent. Well, the Bible tells us there are two federal heads with whom God has made a covenant. Adam is the first federal head, and he represents the whole human race. His rebellion against God caused all of us, all of us, to fall under the same curse of death because God considers all of us to be born in Adam. Now, we may not like that, but we can't refute the fact that we've all disobeyed. We've all rebelled against a holy God, just like our federal head. But here's where God's grace shines. The Apostle Paul calls Jesus our second Adam because he becomes our new federal head when we surrender our lives to him and we identify with him as our Savior King. When we have Jesus as our new representative, his perfect righteousness is imputed to us as if we were the ones who obeyed God perfectly. And in that sense, we say we are in Christ. Now, This is why we can't just have any king. It must be the one who is from the line of David. It must be the one whose delight is in the fear of the Lord and the one who pleases God the Father. In all aspects. This is how Paul explains it in Romans. 
He says, for as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. The root of Jesse came not only to die for us, but to live for us in perfect obedience to reverse the curse that we lived under. And I love that Isaiah says, verse 3, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now, what would our lives look like if our delight was in the fear of the Lord? The reality is that our delight is not in the fear of the Lord, but our default is in the fear of man. That's what makes Jesus a king like no other. It's because he lives in the perfect fear of the Lord that he's able to rule and reign in righteousness. Verse 3, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Because he delights in the fear of the Lord, he has no fear of man, and his judgments and his rule are without error. Now, unlike our earthly rulers and authorities, Jesus doesn't just rule with his senses, but he rules in perfect righteousness. But can we even conceive of a judge whose rulings are all perfect? Even the most well-meaning judges can't rule with perfect equity because they can only judge by what they see and hear in a court of law. But Jesus, anointed with the Spirit of the Lord, he judges all things and all people with perfect equity. He's not swayed by public opinion. He's not hoodwinked by liars and cheats because he can see our hearts. The Bible affirms this to us. Matthew 9, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Psalm 44, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. And this is both awesome and terrifying at the same time, right? That God would know the thoughts of every person in this room. But it should also humble us and give us pause Because God sees who we really are in spite of who we say we are. I'm not sure, but there are probably very few in this room who are familiar with the name Michael Chartrand. Anyone know that name? Okay. Okay. Chris just lied in front of us. Michael Chartrand was a Canadian union activist, and he was the first known person to be described as a social justice warrior in 1991. Now, that term, social justice warrior, or SJW, it used to be a compliment, right? Because it referred to someone who was fighting for the economically and socially marginalized. The term became so widely used that it was added to the Oxford Dictionary in 2015. But it didn't take long for it to become a pejorative label for people who were characterized more for their arguments and their insults on social media than for actually doing anything to alleviate the social injustice in their community. 
Now, maybe you get as frustrated as I do at all the talk of injustice with no real action against it, right? But injustice is not a moral problem in someone else's life. See, you and I participate in that injustice with that harsh word to our spouse or our children. Or in the way that we judge or think about others without knowing all the facts. We perpetuate injustice by being blind to our own biases or being indifferent about the sickness and the hunger and the suffering of others. Now, by contrast, in his perfect righteousness, Jesus will ensure that the very least in his kingdom will receive perfect justice. But when we see all the injustice and suffering in the world, we're very quick to question God's wisdom and his timing. We want God to act swiftly against injustice when we see wickedness out there. But when we consider that we're all part of this problem of injustice in the world, then we're awakened to the fact that, wait, wait a minute. God isn't giving us what we deserve. He's giving us his grace and his mercy. We live in a culture that believes its political leaders will bring lasting peace and make things right. And so there's a lot of angst about who will win the next presidential election. But our only real and lasting hope is in the person of Jesus Christ, our King. Because whether in this life or the next, Jesus is the only ruler who will make all things right. So we don't look to the rulers and the wisdom of this present age to save us. But like the Apostle Peter, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells all the time. Not only will he ensure that the poor and the meek are treated with equity, but he will also make sure that the wicked receive what they're due as well. Verses 4 and 5, we see this another, another amazing statement from Isaiah. And notice that his justice will be carried out not by military invasion, not by nuclear weapon, but by his word. And I think what he may be referring to here is the final word of Jesus when he returns to judge the world in righteousness. We see a similarity to Isaiah's prophecy about this king when we read the words from the Apostle John in Revelation 2. And Jesus says, therefore repent. If not, I will come against you quickly and make war against those people with the sword of my mouth. Now, the difficulty in understanding this passage is that Isaiah speaks of Jesus' rule and reign as if the first and the second advents are just days apart. We view the shoot from Jesse's stump as a reference to Jesus' incarnation in Bethlehem. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. But then there's a seamless overlap into the second advent as we read verses 4 and 5. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So how do we best understand what Isaiah is talking about here? Well, Bible scholars refer to the way in which we should understand the prophets as the mountain peaks of prophecy, or the prophetic perspective. 
In other words, we need to keep in mind that the prophets viewed future events as though they were looking at one mountain range with different peaks of time. Now, in astronomy, this is similar to a planetary conjunction. You know, when you go outside at night and you see a, an object like a planet and a star appear to be close together, even though we know they could be light years apart. See, even though Isaiah is probably talking about two different points in time, there is one eternal perspective that's given to both Judah and to us today. That regardless of where we are on the timeline of history, we will all stand before Jesus to be judged. So we all must surrender to this righteous king. So since we're living between the two advents, how should we live as we wait for Jesus to return? I believe this passage teaches us that we should live confidently and faithfully. And I say confidently because we already know the score at the end of the game, right? Jesus wins every time. And apart from the gospel, this hurting world can only know and understand life from what they judge by their senses. But Isaiah allows us to look backward to the first advent. When Jesus was born, but he also allows us to look forward to the second advent when he returns. So we have the confidence that every single moment of every day, God is unfolding his sovereign plan. And we can see our stories inside of his grand story. And the book of Isaiah also teaches us that we can live faithfully. Because our temptation will be, like King Ahaz, to only judge what's happening in the world with our senses. If we do that, we'll go into panic mode and we'll try to save ourselves and we'll spiritually drift. Instead, Isaiah calls us to trust in our sovereign God to keep his promise to David and to us. Remember that the people of God had to wait 700 years for that first advent. But their faith was vindicated when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. In the same way, our faith will also be vindicated when our Savior returns in glory and we're resurrected and fully transformed. So we wait, but we wait with hope. But we're not called to passively wait around until Jesus comes. Our waiting is designed to do something in us. And if we miss what his purpose is in saving us, then we're going to miss our purpose in waiting. In his letter to Titus, the Apostle Paul exhorts us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age as we wait for Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And one of the jobs I have a great respect for, because I think it's highly underrated, is lifeguard. Now you've seen these lifeguards, maybe at a water park or the beach. Their whole time at work can be characterized by one word, waiting. But it's not passively waiting. They spend their whole time watching and preparing themselves to spring into action, to use their skills to rescue other people who are in trouble. God calls you and me to live faithfully between the two advents, 
as if we were spiritual lifeguards who are zealous for good works, always on the lookout for people in need of rescue by Jesus. But when our waiting lacks that meaning and purpose, it can easily, easily spiral into apathy and resentment and even godlessness. This is what happened in the early church as false teachers came and they said, where is this promise that Jesus is coming again? To which the Apostle Peter answered that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as we understand slowness, but he's being patient with us so that we repent and we will not perish. So we need to view our waiting not in terms of God's timing, but in terms of God's mercy. He's allowing us time to repent, to sanctify us, to use us in his kingdom to help bring others to repentance as well. So Trinity Church, hold this promise of Jesus' second advent in front of us as a motivation toward holiness so that we're not lulled into sleep. So Jesus Christ is the root of Jesse who rules and reigns in perfect righteousness and justice. And when you have that kind of king, it produces a perfect peace in the kingdom. As we read Isaiah's prophecy of what we'll experience at the consummation, of his kingdom. It's as if we're reading some kind of children's fairy tale, right? The wolf living with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, and an infant playing near the cobra's den. Now, trying to envision the reality of these things is as strange as me saying that all crime in Chicago has stopped. That you and I will never hear again of a mass shooting, or that you and I will never again question the love of God for us. But this is a depiction of the way that God intended for things to be before sin entered the world. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, wrote, Some mortals say of temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And this is a beautiful description of what God is preparing us for. But I don't think we can appreciate the beauty of what God is doing unless we can see it against the backdrop of our sin to see how destructive and pervasive our sin really is. And the Bible tells us that when sin entered the world, it brought with it death. And primarily our sin separates us from God. And it's so serious that all the combined efforts of man cannot repair this relationship. It can only be dealt with by God becoming one of us, the shoot from the stump of Jesse. He becomes one of us to live in perfect obedience to the Father. And then he gives his own life on our behalf to die for our sins. Our sin is the reason why we experience conflict with each other. Our sin is the reason why work is so difficult. Our sin is why we get sick, why we cry, and why we die. All human beings are under this horrible curse of sin, and there's no escape from the power of sin except if you belong to this Messiah King and if you surrender your life to him. If you belong to the king today, our lives are like a movie trailer of what the consummation of his kingdom will be like. 
He's begun this process of reversing the curse in us. And as his disciples, we display to the world something of what God's kingdom will be like in its fullness. The Apostle Paul says, if any person is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. In other words, we think differently. Our desires are different. Our priorities are different. Because now Jesus Christ is at the center of our lives. Have you experienced this in your life? And when the world thinks of animals killing each other or people in conflict or people who don't know the Messiah, they think of that as normal. Well, that's just the way the world works, they think. But Jesus has come to show us that our life in him is the new normal. That's the true normal. Verse 9 is a picture of this. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I think the blessings of God are appreciated best when we understand what our lives would look like without them. Take the blessing of peace from number six as an example. What if we receive this benediction? Not as a benediction, but as a malediction or a curse. Imagine me saying this to you at the end of our worship service. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment and grace. May the Lord turn his back on you and remove his peace from you forever. Have a good week. (laughs) It's terrible, right? But without the Messiah, this is what our life would look like for all of eternity. Instead, the perfect rule and reign of Christ in righteousness will bring about a perfect peace and a fundamental transformation to everything and to everyone in that kingdom. And rather than that awful malediction, we receive this benediction instead. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord Lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Much better, right? Maybe you're still exploring the truths of Christianity today. At the beginning of our time, I mentioned that God told King Ahaz to ask him for a sign, but he refused. God gave him a sign anyway, and it was in the form of a child called Emmanuel. Like Ahaz, God offers that sign to us as an invitation to faith. But if that sign is rejected, that sign actually becomes a sign of judgment. Do you know this king? Have you surrendered to him? Will you turn to him today? Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we worship you because you are the king. 
and there is no other. We ask, God, for your forgiveness, for seeking saviors of our own making, and for placing our trust in ourselves or other things. And so, in response to your word, God, would you help us to find our hope in you alone? God, if there are those here this morning that don't know you as king, in your mercy, in your great mercy, would you draw them to yourself? And would you stir in their hearts a desire to know you, to love you, and to serve you with their lives? We ask it in your holy name. Amen.